Good morning, everybody. We're going to get started here with a little background information so Scott can have his full 20 minutes. Welcome to virtual breakfast of May 26th. Uh, this is our little demographic disclaimer. The collection of demographic data from program participants is an important and mandated aspect of all Michigan State University Extension programming. This is voluntary and the information that you provide will not be used in any way to identify you personally, but rather as an anonymous member that participated in this program. Please take a moment to answer the questions in the poll that is going to be opening on your screen. Jenna, <clears throat> Jenna I'll just add that this is, uh, this is a really uh, critical part of our, our programming and has really mandated more times uh, than people realize from our, our federal partners. So we really do appreciate people participating in this. All right, I'm going to give people just a few more seconds to finish up the poll and then uh, go ahead and get started again. So with that, try and finish as many questions as you can, and I'm going to turn it over to Jenna. All righty. Again, thank you for joining us. For this morning's edition of our virtual breakfast, our speaker today is Scott Bales. My name is Jenna Thaler, and I am a field crops extension educator over in the thumb. Just a couple of normal reminders that we have for you. Please remember to mute yourself during the presentations. Also, please make sure that you have your first and your last name as your display name if you want credit for being here to do that. Click on the participant list icon, <clears throat> find your name, and hover or click over it. Click more or rename, and then type your name into that window. Again, that helps us when we're verifying that you were here for your RUP credits. And finally, if you have any questions, please make sure you enter those into the chat box that's going to be found at the bottom of your screen, and we will get to those after our presenters. Scott, I'll hand it over to you. Thanks, Jenna. I'll go ahead and uh, share my slides here. And uh, once again, my name is Scott Bales. I'm MSU Driving Specialist based here at the Saginaw Valley Research and Extension Center uh, near Frankenmuth, Michigan. Um, so I always like to start these with a quote. Um, I thought this one was very applicable to our, our driving season. You know, we talk a lot of times that, you know, maybe your, your corn growing season is a marathon. Well, driving's are a sprint. Um, and the quote goes, give me six hours to chop down a tree. I'll spend the first four hours sharpening the ax. That's Abraham Lincoln. Um, and I think that's really applicable because with our, our short growing season, it's important to be very prepared. You know, we don't want any hiccups, you know, throughout the course of the season. Um, you know, oftentimes beans will be, you know, physiologically mature in 80 to 90 days after emergence. Um, so we definitely don't want any setbacks throughout that growing season. And we want to be as well prepared as we can be. Some take home points from today's talk. Um, first, we'll talk about variety selection and placement. Uh, we'll back off on that a little bit and give some background information on dry beans as a whole. I know there's some folks on here that are you know, very familiar with dry beans, but there might be some that are not too, or at least haven't been in a number of years. We'll talk about planting rates and conditions, um, and also kind of what's next. Just uh, what should we be aware of coming down the pipeline you know, as we move along those 80 to 90 days to physiological maturity, and also some helpful tools that might uh, be useful for you along the course of the growing season. 
So um, to talk about variety selection, you know, the first thing we need to, to discuss or understand is our growth type and market class of interest. You know, there's there's two main you know growth types that we're working with here in Michigan, and that would be a determinate bush type bean. Um, in today's varieties, those are our kidneys and cranberry beans. Um, if you grew beans in maybe the 70s or 80s and, and haven't worked with them since, you know, those were what you were used to seeing in your blacks and navies, you know, varieties such as seafarer, um, navy bean, um, domino black bean. Um, those beans are bred for a pull and windrow system. Um, where those beans are, you know, pulled from under the soil, either a rod or knife puller, you know, early in the morning, um, and then threshed later in those windrows, as you see in that top picture. Um, however, much more popular in Michigan now would be our indeterminate varieties or growth types. You know, those would be a vining or what we'd call an upright short vine that have been bred for a direct harvest system. Um, keep those pods a little bit farther off the ground. And those would be our blacks, navies, and small reds. So that's kind of one of our, our first choices we have to make, you know, as we're looking at what we want to plant on our farms, um, is what equipment do we have available, um, and what we are able to do as far as a harvest method. So to kind of give a little more background on that, you know, we have our overarching species of Phaseolus vulgaris, which is known as common bean. Um, and in my head, I, that's split between two groups here in Michigan. We have snap beans that we won't talk about today um, and dry beans. And the only difference there has been our breeding. Snap beans were bred for the, the harvesting and consumption of that, you know, fresh, you know, succulent pod, you know, green beans in a can, uh, where dry beans were bred for the dry seed. Um, overall, same species. And then within dry beans, we have that further distinction of our determinate varieties. You know, a bush type bean, you can see the picture on the left as they were first described in the 1980s, um, and our indeterminate varieties on the right. In Michigan, we use a type two, which is upright indeterminate or upright short vine. Um, you'll also see that we have some prostrate indeterminates. You know, think of green beans in your garden of that kind of growth type of, of climbing or trailing, um, not very well suited for direct harvest. So our, our bush type beans and our upright short vines would be the two we're working with here in the state. So it takes a bit of a trained eye in the field to, to see the real difference of these two. Uh, but on the left, we have an indeterminate variety. You know, you can see that pod height is a little bit higher off the ground um, than our bush type beans on the right. And the real key difference there is that, you know, once these plants flower, you know, we still get stem elongation in an indeterminate variety as it continues to grow up, you know, once flowering does occur. Uh, where a bush type bean, once that flowering starts, that stem elongation ceases. Um, and those pods usually stay a little lower to the ground and thus we need our different harvest methods to, to do a, a good job of harvesting those market classes. So to dive a little bit deeper into that, you know, talking about variety selection within growth type or market class, um, I'm always a big fan of utilizing all of our available resources. And being a little biased, I think Extension Bulletin 3465 is a great resource that we have here in Michigan. Um, these are the dry bean performance trials that we publish each year. Um, in the 2021 edition, you'll see information on 151 different varieties across 11 different market classes. Uh, looking forward to 2022, currently we have 160 varieties entered into these trials. Um, and they use six locations on farm in Michigan uh, to produce information for growers such as maturity, lodging, yield, um, disease tolerance, as well as resistance. Um, that way you can get a really full picture of these varieties that we have available and understand how they may or may not work for your farm. 
Um, some key um, disease tolerances or resistance that we do like to pay attention to would be anthracnose. Uh, we do have some varieties with genetic resistance, which can be important. Uh, white mold tolerance, as we'll call it. As we know, there's, there's no true resistance available in dry beans or soybeans, uh, but some varieties do do better than others through some different uh, architectural avoidance, um, as well as root rot. You know, if we go to the corn and soybean world, we hear a lot about product placement. Um, and I do think this is the direction of, of agriculture as a whole, as well as dry beans. You know, we can see our, our variety pipeline is much wider than it used to be in the past. You know, and this is giving growers more options. You know, within black beans, we can look at varieties that, that not only work for our farms, but work for specific fields in our farms. You know, as we look at fields that may have a history of anthracnose or white mold disease and select our, our varieties based on that information, um, and provide some more diversity and, and security within our own operations, you know, looking at maturities, disease resistance, and flowering dates um, to help spread our risk. So just give a quick example of what that bulletin does look like on the inside. Uh, this is our Navy bean trial from 2021. So we'll follow across a uh, popular variety here called HMS Bounty. So it'd be the fifth one down. You can see we have a maturity of 91 days after planting, flowers at 43 days, uh, plant height is 18 inches tall, a lodging score of 1.3, um, and in that case, lower is better. So those are scored on a scale of one to five, where one is very erect and five is flat on the ground. Um, so 1.3 is very good. White mold infection, once again, lower is better. Here we have a 21% white mold infection. Um, and then our yield presented in pounds per acre for individual locations in Michigan, you know, Bay, Huron, Santa Lac, and Tuscola counties. And then we also see our one, two, and three year averages, you know, when averaged across all those four locations per year. Uh, so overall, we feel this is very strong data sets, you know, when you're looking to make those decisions uh, between varieties and what may or may not work for your farm. So to move on, you know, once we have those, you know, market classes decided, you know, specific varieties, you know, acquired and on the farm and, and now we're sitting here on May 26th and, you know, we're thinking about planting dry beans, kind of what's next. Um, so planting depth becomes one of our questions and, and we generally refer to, to moisture. You know, dry beans should be planted to moisture. Generally, dry conditions are better than wet. You know, sometimes we'll joke, that's why they're called dry beans. Um, they, last year, we had a very dry planting season and our stands were relatively excellent because of that. Um, but the thing we need to make sure is that those beans are actually seeded in that moisture to allow for an even germination. Um, an inch and a half would be ideal. And I don't think we want to plant more than three inches deep. Uh, but we want to make sure that they're all planted into moisture so that we do get that even emergence, which is important and sometimes difficult to do, you know, in early to mid-June once those soils begin to dry out on top. Um, it is important that that is even, though, uh, when we're looking at our harvest aid applications. You know, if we have portions of that field or sometimes portion of that row, you know, that didn't come up for another week or two because they were planted into dry patches of soil, um, when we put that desiccant on, we'll either lose those beans out of the back of our combine because they didn't get a chance to fully mature, uh, which is often the best case scenario in that situation, or they'll end up in our load oftentimes with an off color. Uh, it'll be picked out upon delivery and we'll be docked for those. Uh, so it is very important that we do plant to moisture to get that crop up and even. You know, we do need to consider upcoming weather patterns when we're doing this though. Um, I know last year when we did have to plant into those dry soils and we went deeper than most were comfortable with, um, 
it really worked in our favor that we did not have any large rainfall events, you know, in the forecast and they did not come. Um, it is challenging to plant that deep, you know, when we have variable rainfall patterns because an inch or two of rain after planting deep can be a, a challenge for those stands. Um, another thing that, that has come up over the years too is watch our soil movement during rolling, especially on lighter soils. Uh, we had a couple situations, you know, the past couple years where, you know, maybe we planted dry beans at two inches, uh, but upon rolling, we did get some movement of soil in front of that roller, you know, which we're rolling to flatten that soil out ahead of direct harvest so we can do a better job of harvest. Um, we actually pushed some more soil on top of those rows and got those beans a little bit deeper than we had liked and then thus seeing some emergence issues. So that's always something just to be aware of. So then moving on to planting populations. Um, you know, once we have our depth established, you know, populations has been a highly debated as well as researched topic in dry beans over not only the past 20 years that we've been in direct harvest systems, um, but the past five years. Um, our current recommendation is 100 to 130,000 seeds per acre in 20 to 22 inch rows. So some easy ways to, to kind of adjust that number based on your system is if maybe you are in wide rows, 28 to 30 inches, you know, you can pull that recommendation down by about 10%. You know, if we're looking at determinant growth types such as kidney beans, and maybe you are in wide rows, 30 inches, which most of our kidney bean production is, you know, you can pull that recommendation down about another 10% or 20% uh, in total from that 100 to 130,000 seeds per acre. And then we'll go over a little bit of how we, we revalidated this um, recommendation. Uh, we looked at 10 different planting locations over three years uh, where we tested dry bean planting populations. Uh, the most rigorous trial was conducted last year here at the Saginaw Valley Research and Extension Center. In that trial, we looked at populations from 50 to 150,000 seeds per acre, um, all in 20 inch rows utilizing Zenith black beans. So we'll take a little bit and unpack these results here. Um, on the left-hand side of this plot, you'll see our yield presented in pounds per acre, you know, clean at harvest time. And then across the bottom, we have our planting populations from 50,000, our lowest on the far left, all the way up to 150,000 on the far right. And then we'll look at those red bars that represents yield, where we planted 50,000 seeds per acre. Our yield ended up at about 2,700 pounds per acre, 27 bags. You know, as we follow that across, you know, going to the right as our planting populations are going up, you know, we see that yield increases when that trend line. So about we reach 110,000, then we reach a plateau where they slowly start to drop off once we reach 150,000. Um, so that 100,000 to 130,000, you know, seeds per acre, uh, planted has been kind of our, our sweet spot for yield as well as return on investment. As we all know, seed is not a, not a small investment in our driving planting operations. Um, the, the interesting thing that we did with this trial too is we reevaluated what those stands were at maturity ahead of harvest time. Um, so you'll see that represented as plants per acre at harvest on our right axis. And those values are represented by our blue trend line coming across. And this is actually going to be a, an interesting research topic for us going forward, you know, looking at some results from other states as well. Um, as when we planted 50,000 seeds per acre, you know, we harvested 40,000, about what would we expect, a loss of 20%. However, when we planted 100,000 seeds per acre, we only harvested about 50,000 plants per acre. So we lost, you know, nearly 50% of that stand uh, between planting and harvest. So it is a, an interesting question of what's actually going on, you know, in that driving season, why we're not maintaining that stand we had at planting time. 
you know, and these were planted with a, a cone type planter, which for research is, is very precise in how many seeds we're planting. So we're, these populations are, are exact at planting time, uh, but oftentimes our individual seed to seed placement is not the most precise in that system. Um, so it'll be a question of whether, you know, precision planting technology and some of these things that we're able to do in modern agriculture, you know, can help us actually push these plants at harvest time higher, you know, and closer to what our original seeding rate was if we're talking high populations and, and how that may affect this data set. So sometimes we, we think of dry beans and we just think about Michigan, uh, but, you know, we have some good partners at North Dakota State University um, working in dry beans as well. So they've had two major trials. Uh, if you're interested in these, the titles are A1921, Black and Navy Bean Response to Row Spacing and Plant Population in Eastern North Dakota, um, which would be the most similar to our production here in Michigan. And then also a, a second trial looking at the, the impact of white mold disease on that row spacing um, and plant population in pinot beans. Um, I put this picture here on the right. I took this in Grand Forks, North Dakota in the fall of 2019. Uh, so these are windrows of great northern beans in the snow. Um, so while North Dakota is a great partner for us, their environmental conditions are a little bit different than what we have here in Michigan. Uh, if you follow US 2 across the upper peninsula um, headed west, you run into their driving productions. So they have a, a little bit of a shorter season than us um, and, and deal with some difficult environmental conditions at time. Uh, so it is important to, to keep in mind that their production is a little different than here, uh, but overall very good resource for us to look to for, for additional information. So to start with their black bean trial, uh, very similar trialing to us as we've done in the past, looking at row spacing here on the left of narrow rows, 14, 21, and then wider rows and 28 inches planted each to three different populations across the top with their low being 101,000 plants per acre. Um, and that value was established two weeks after planting. Um, middle at 126,000 seeds per acre and high at 148,000 seeds per acre. Main takeaway from this is they see a slight advantage here between narrow rows and wide rows as you follow these categories up within population. Um, something that we've also found in Michigan is that there's typically a, a slight yield advantage to narrow rows over wide rows um, found across all three planting populations. However, when we look across um, planting populations within row width, um, we, do, we fail to have a significant difference here um, within this population range of 100 to 150,000 seeds per acre, uh, which would be you know, supportive of our data set too. Um, that once we reach that kind of threshold of a stand, you know, adding more seed to that population didn't necessarily improve yield. They also looked at this split out for navy beans as well, uh, which somewhat similar information here. Um, you look at those same three row widths, 14, 21, and 28 inches, and then row spacing or row populations of 92,000 plants per acre, 116,000, and 139,000. When you look across those populations, again, we don't see significant differences for that difference that range between 92,000 and 140,000 plants per acre. Uh, but where we do see a much larger difference is that response to narrow row widths. Um, here, you know, in our 92,000, our 28 inch rows yielded just about 20 bags. Uh, and as we move down to those narrow rows, we had about a five bag response. You know, and this is even elevated as we look at those higher populations. Uh, so this was avalanche navy bean uh, really responded to those narrow row widths compared to their black bean trials. Um, so it is a, an interesting takeaway from this trial, you know, and something uh, that could be of interest to us here in Michigan.
you know, and just to touch on our second topic there of white mold disease and how this impacts um, our, our response is looking at yield um, for row spacing of 30 inches, 22 and a half, 15 and seven and a half, so very narrow, just at two seeding rates. So a low of 70,000 seeds per acre and a high of 120,000 seeds per acre. Uh, and keep in mind, these are pinot beans. When we have low disease pressure, less than 20% of that canopy infected, um, we still see that response to those narrow rows as our yields trend up as we go down, which is represented our, our narrower rows. You know, and we don't see a real response to that different population between those. However, once we reach intermediate disease pressure, that 20 to 40% of the canopy, uh, we lose that significant difference between our row widths as well as populations. And once we're at a high, it evens out even more. Um, so kind of what have we learned and what are our takeaways from all this information is most often emerged populations of 70,000 plants per acre support average yield potential, you know, less than 35 bags in 20 to 22 inch rows. Uh, we have had some instances where, you know, higher plant populations above 70,000 plants per acre emerged uh, can support above average yields or above 3,500 weight per acre. You know, I'd like to say we could all plan on yields greater than 35 bags per acre, and maybe some of us can, uh, but that's a, a pretty lofty goal for us here in Michigan at times. So the, the end takeaway is only you can really decide what your proper seeding rate is to produce that early season plan stand of adequate density or above 70,000 plants per acre. You know, you should encourage your, your look at your percent germination of that seed lot. You know, and also we often have problems with soil crusting, heavy rainfall, you know, and some of those nuances that, that come along throughout the early season. You know, and then just to touch on NDSU's takeaway is dryings do have that advantage to narrow rows um, in years of low white mold pressure or under increased management. So if we're expecting to, to draw on that advantage to narrow rows, we either need to have naturally low white mold infection or we need to make sure we're on top of our management in those narrow rows because that advantage can be erased with disease pressure. So I know I'm short on time here, so I'll just really touch on this briefly. Um, you know, a topic that comes up quite often, especially this time of year, is there, is there an advantage to early planting in dry beans? Um, and I think there's some real key considerations that we need to make, uh, such as soil temperature, soil moisture, upcoming weather patterns. And, and oftentimes we're considering this because we're thinking of our following crop, our, our kind of partner in the season of wheat, you know, looking at that wheat planting date and rate. So I pulled this data yesterday, and this is our two-inch bare soil temp um, out of Verona, Michigan, and the thumb, heart of some of our production. Uh, we have our past three years represented here of 2020 in green, 2021 in red, and 2022 in blue. And you can see we're trending in the right direction. I often think of 60 degrees as our threshold soil temperature. Uh, so we're, we're close to it, but we want to make sure we're continuing to increase, which I think Jeff has some good news for us next week of what direction these soil temps may head. Um, so we're, we're definitely a little cool right now for us to get started, but headed in the right direction. You know, and a key takeaway that North Dakota had on this as well, you know, when they compared, you know, early planting dates, May 13th to the 23rd, compared to normal and late planting dates, you know, physiologically maturity remained the same, but where we had a real difference was planting to emergence. So a lot of our, you know, advantage to planting early, you know, didn't really make an appearance because those beans took twice as long to come up, you know, in those cooler soil temps. And overall, we see no significant difference in yield. However, the numerical trend was lower for our earlier planting dates. And then last couple notes, you know, as we're thinking down the road, always make sure we start clean. 
um, and driving is weak control can be a, an issue. So we want to make sure that we're starting in the best case scenario. Um, and then another quote from Dr. Kurt Steike is start right to finish well. We want to make sure all those soil amendments and practices are done ahead of time, you know, to make sure we're on track for that, you know, 80 to 90 day season. Uh, we do not want any hiccups, you know, mid-season on our fertility and nutrient management programs. So as we're coming down the road, we want to make sure we're on top of insect management as well as foliar disease, which, you know, Dr. Cristofanzo and Marty Chilvers will talk about, you know, later, you know, throughout the season. Uh, but my recommendation is always to scout. You know, it's pretty tough to do this from the pickup and, and walking your beans is, is always a good practice. And there's some helpful tools out there, such as our insect management guide that can tell you what to look for, you know, based on the month as you're walking those bean fields. You know, we have our 2021 Michigan Dry Bean Research Report. Um, as well as a Sporecaster app, you know, which Marty, I'm sure, will talk about later this season of how to make those spray decisions of when to spray and, and how, to, how to start. So then I'll just finish that with kind of, is your act sharp? Um, do you feel like you're prepared for the season? Um, if there's any you know, particular questions, you know, feel free to put those in the chat. Or if it's a little more detailed, feel free to, to send me an email or, or always a phone call is welcome. And with that, I'll wrap things up. Thank you, Scott. Next up, we will hand it over to Jeff for the weather. Thank you, Jenna, and good morning. There we go. Hopefully you've, you've got that. Uh, we have, a, well, a lot of changes we've, we've dealt with here uh, this season thus far, and another one in place now with some, a very soupy, humid air mass in place uh, across much of the upper Midwest, including Michigan, and that's going to be with us here for another day or two, but I'll talk about that. There are some big changes, and Scott alluded to uh, that it's just one of these seasons where you sort of jump in and hang on because we've been up and down, and we're going to see that once again here, but uh, I guess the one of the long and the shorts of it is that, that we're looking at a really nice upcoming uh, holiday weekend here, but definitely definitely an increase in temperatures, and that will include some certainly some jumps in soil temperature here next week, so I'll talk about that in just a moment. Uh, looking back at last week, uh, one of the things I, well, you don't like to cover these things, but it's, I think it's important is historical significance. We had a, it's a severe weather outbreak, but it was actually one supercell thunderstorm that went across the northern lower peninsula here last Friday afternoon. And this is something, if you, if you follow this, and you probably have, have seen this, this is, this is the type of thing you see in the southern Great Plains in, in Tornado Alley. Not so much in Michigan, but we did see uh, here, uh, uh, again, this uh, storm that formed, you can see over uh, Leelanau, Benzie County, and then just moved east-northeastward across the northern lower and out into Lake Huron later that day. But the, the tragic thing is we had a, a, a major tornado uh, in the Gaylord area, and I'm sure you've seen the footage of this. Uh, and uh, it, it was a, an EF3 intensity tornado with winds up to 160 miles an hour. It was the strongest tornado we've seen in Michigan since uh, 2012. Uh, there were a couple of fatalities, unfortunately, with that, uh, and it's it's a it's a miracle there probably weren't more. But uh, this is a this is an unusual thing uh, in Michigan, fortunately, you know, with our climate. But it's a reminder that it is possible 
that, that we do CDs. I think we always have to remember that. And even in, in Northern Michigan, where it's even the frequency is, e is even less, I uh, did a couple of talks with some media and the number of tornadoes we have each year in Michigan is, is about 15 on average. But we have to remember that the majority of those are in the Southern part of the state. And as you go North uh, in the state, these frequency of severe weather, and that includes severe thunderstorms and certainly tornadoes, it drops off pretty rapidly by the time you get to, uh, to upper Michigan. So very, very unusual, but as I say, a reminder, it is certainly possible under the right circumstances or the wrong circumstances in this case. For our statistics here for the week, depending on where you were, and they range from warmer than normal conditions, you can see across the southeastern portion of the state, uh, to cooler than normal still up in the far north. And that's that's been a pattern we've seen during a lot of the spring. It's it, the, the northern part of the state has, has really been the furthest behind phenologically. It, it, some of the, the warmest weather has not reached there quite yet. Uh, that will change here uh, early next week. But in general, uh, cooler uh, to warmer as you go from northwest to southeast across the state. On the right-hand side here with precipitation, again, depending on location, but most of the state saw a half to one inch so pretty close to normal, maybe a little bit above normal. One exception here, and this is sort of ironic given that uh, two weeks ago or a week and a half ago, we looked at some incredibly heavy inundating rain uh, that fell here in portions of Oceana, Nuevo, and then eastward into this. Those areas uh, had the, the lowest totals here for the week for change, but you can see especially across central and southern lower Michigan, solid half uh, to one inch with some one inch plus totals where it was a little bit wetter. So again, uh, another, that that's also continuing with this wetter than normal pattern we've had for much of the spring. Well, on our weather map here this morning, fairly fairly complex, but it is, uh, in terms of the forecast, it's it's relatively straightforward. We've got a an upper air trough, and you can see that down here on the right. Actually, I've got both, I, I use the national satellite or national radar loop here because you can just see this really, really well uh, illustrated on with the precipitation activity here on the low left and then with the satellite on the lower right. And you can see that counterclockwise spin, big upper air trough. That has been the, the theme of this, this uh, spring and late winter so far, we've had a number of these big high amplitude, strong troughs move through. And when that happens, we, we get the formation of, of well, significant low pressure systems on the surface. And on, so on the surface map, that's what you actually see here uh, with a couple areas of low pressure along a frontal boundary, but it's all, all together, it's connected with that upper trough. It's a, a large area of low pressure. And just as importantly, and you can easily see this again with, with both those, we've got the transport of water vapor right out of the Gulf of Mexico, our major source of water vapor for precip. It's on its way. And again, if it feels like the Gulf Coast here this morning, well, it's it's because it is. That's where the that's where the ear mass came from. And that is with us, especially for the southern part of the state here for at least the next uh, 24 to 36 hours. Uh, and what we're going to see with this frontal boundary, it's not going to go anywhere fast, given the upper air flow here. We're going to see a couple of different waves of low pressure small right up along that and lead to a couple of different waves of precipitation. Right now, we've got a little bit of a lull you can see in the radar, except for the northern part of the state that went through uh, western portions of the state yesterday, and that's uh, that's up north, and we will see another wave here come. There will be scattered showers and a few thunderstorms today. A lot of areas will remain dry in, in, in central and southern parts of the state. We might even see once in a while a break in the sunshine, but I think the next wave this uh, low of low pressure will move through tonight and we'll see likely showers and thunderstorms over most areas here again tonight, another wave. And then tomorrow, 
as we look at the map, you can see things have progressed a little bit further to the east. We'll have, and this this looks a little bit more like a late winter or cool season type of, and it's it's because of the upper air system here. But we've actually got the center of the low pressure moving just to our south and east. And what that means, uh, we'll be in the the so-called deformations on a meteorological term for the lifting that, that occurs north of these areas of low pressure. So instead of showers and thunderstorms, I think tomorrow, especially across the southeastern third or so of the lower peninsula, we'll see a more steady light to maybe moderate rain. Uh, that's a type of some, and, and as opposed to, there, there will be some showers in there, but, but more of a steady rain. So we are looking at some pretty significant rainfall totals, especially again in the southeast, decreasing as you go north. Uh, here's the map for Saturday, high pressure moves in, and that sets the stage for a, a, a the building of an upper, we're going to replace that trough that, that we, we saw here, or at least it's causing the weather now. We're going to replace it once again, and this has happened before, rapidly with an upper air ridge. And of course, ridging means it's going to warm up. It's definitely going to warm up. We're going to have the wind shift around out of the south and southwest and lead to, uh, Saturday will be a beautiful day. And again, I mentioned a nice weekend. Sunday, as the high shifts over a little bit further to the east, we're going to get more warm air up here and we'll be well into the 70s on, uh, on Sunday into near 80. And then for the early part of next week, we're looking at, at summer. Uh, mid upper 80s will probably will push 90 for, for maximum temperatures several days uh, across, uh, across most of the state uh, and nighttime only into the 60s to near 70. So much above normal temperatures here coming for the bulk of the, well, Sunday through the bulk of, uh, of next work week. After tomorrow for precipitation, there will be the chance or the threat of some scattered, and I'll, scattered might be a little bit even aggressive, maybe isolated would be better in the far northern part of the state, especially the upper peninsula, but I, most of the state's gonna remain dry here. Uh, that would be on Saturday, Saturday evening, early Sunday. Most everybody else's after tomorrow is gonna dry off, mostly sunny, fair, dry conditions, and that will continue. It's mostly sunny, hot, or warmer, hot here for next week. Next chance for precip, probably not until at least the middle of next week, Wednesday or Thursday. So there's an extended period there. Uh, and I'll show you here in a second with temperatures like that and with the humidities will be lower than they have been, strong sunshine, we're gonna have really rapid evaporation rates. So while yes, we're looking at adding more water to the system right now, which is not the greatest timing in the world, there will be rapid drying uh, that takes place here of soils. Um, and I, here's a temperature map uh, forecast for Monday. This is actually forecast temperatures relative to normal. And I mentioned we're gonna be at, or maybe even a couple degrees below normal for the next day or so. But then by next week, we jump way above. Uh, these are in, in Celsius here, but you can see uh, temperatures easily 15 degrees Fahrenheit above where they typically are. It's, and this again, this is Monday. We'll see the same thing on Tuesday and Wednesday at a minimum, maybe even longer than that. For precipitation, for how much water, uh, and, and the map I think tells a really good story here. This is through next Thursday morning. The high, heaviest totals, again, across the southeastern and southern portion of lower Michigan. Three quarters to an inch and a quarter are possible uh, with amounts decreasing rapidly as you go north of that to less than half an inch. So that's really, I think, and I, I think this is a good forecast. It, it, uh, it's, it's, uh, but there's, there's significant rain to come here, especially across the southern part of the state uh, over the next day. And I mentioned the rapid drying, and it's only, it's late May. We typically don't talk about water use and needs here until later in the season, but I wanted to throw this out here because, again, with those meteorological conditions, the rate of evaporation is going to be very, very rapid. So I guess the point is, 
watch carefully because what typically or may have taken usually taken several days to dry out uh, situation is going to it's going to happen faster. And you can see totals here for the week 1.3. Those are those are high totals even in in July uh, and in August. So uh, and again, these are this is potential evapotranspiration our reference value, but those are high values, especially for late May. So. Again, expect rapid changes in soil moisture at that top. Uh, and as Scott mentioned, there will be opportunities quickly, I would, uh, I would expect uh, as next week goes on. Looking ahead here, how long would the warm spell hang on? Well, you can see there's confidence that most of this will go through the, a lot of the week next week. The six to 10 day outlook, Here's that ridge I talked about here on the lower left-hand side here. That's still staying there. And then, of course, underneath that, we've got above normal temperatures. And then as you go west, once again, cooler than normal, that, that, that same west to east uh, pattern, cold, warm, warm, cold. And also, this is this is a little bit of a difference, too. They've, they've backed off on precip. They're... they're Outlooks are calling for lower or normal to below normal precipitation totals for that same time. Now, the, the, I think the intriguing question is what happens after this? How long does this upper air pattern persist? And if, if we looked at the rest of the, the few weeks before us, we'd say probably not forever. And that's what the, that's what the forecast guidance suggests. I'm not going to show the 8 to 14 day because it, there's very low confidence. But what the, what the guidance is saying, it's, it's all over the place. But there will be changes uh, to what we go to next is though is not really clear. It's just that this warm, dry pattern that we're in next week probably will will end some point towards the end of next week or the next weekend. And finally, a uh, a new long lead outlook here from uh, the Climate Prediction Center. This is uh, this was issued at the end of last week from uh, and again the, the month of June on the top here, and then the June, July, and August outlook. A little bit of a change, but in general, the, the theme of warmer than normal temperatures is still there. Precipitation, the equal chances, so real no, no real direction in terms of precip. We'll be looking at that, that medium range forecast guidance is so important in this, especially that 30 day, that outlook for June, and what kind of changes we'll, we'll be looking at that for next week, where are we headed after this warm, dry spell. So wrapping up here, again, very active, wet uh, type of weather pattern here for the next a day, a day and a half, but then big changes over the weekend. Just for the, again, if you're going to be outside for holiday weekend, it's just going to be gorgeous uh, conditions. A real taste of summer early with temperatures back into the 80s by Sunday and then continuing next week and also dry with rapid drying. So hopefully you'll be able to take advantage of that. Uh, and, and as you just saw in the medium range, more of the same for a lot of next week, but then probably a change after that. We'll, again, we'll, we'll, be keeping an eye out there uh, for for next week and warmer than normal here is is still the direction for the for the rest of the growing season and i think with that i'm going to hand it back over to jenna so thank you thank you jeff all right everybody back to some oops back to some housekeeping stuff here our topic for next week it's going to be a hot topic session so this is going to be your chance to interact with all of our specialists on what they're seeing in the field and any questions you have for anything you're seeing in the field. Um, most of our extension specialists will be on for that. So a little bit different than what we've been doing recently. So the next slide we have here, just thanking you guys for attending. Also, if you're on any social media, we would appreciate if you wanted to follow us and keep up with what the field crops team is doing. Um, we tried to put out different information. And this, for example, will be out on a podcast on some of those platforms if you want to come back and rewatch anything. 
With that, we're on to the Q&A section of this. Please drop your questions into the chat box. And Jeff is going to have to leave us a little bit early. So if you have any weather questions, please make sure you get those in fairly quickly so we can get them to him. Um, With that being said, I guess we'll get that kicked off. And Jeff, we'll start out with one for you. Um, you mentioned that we were going to have, you know, different rainfalls, and then you showed our evapo transpiration being quite right. high. Um, do you anticipate that being an ongoing theme throughout the season, or is there just a lot of variability going on right now? It's it's probably more the latter, and and uh, it, it's just a it, it it has to do again with that very very amplified jet stream pattern, and it's it's unusual weather. But it, it may be, and I think it's an opportunity for a couple of reasons, but one, uh, it's going to help dry things out more quickly than t- very much more quickly than is typically the case at this time of the year to allow people to get back. It's also, we think about the crop that's already planted. It, it's going to bring the soil temperatures up. We should get, it should help with stand establishment or germination and, and better stand establishment with the, the warmer soils. Again, this time of the year, remember, it can be, it can be pretty ugly uh, with cool, wet conditions. So having this extended period of, of, of really warm or unusually warm, dry weather, uh, I, I think will be mostly positive. It'll, we'll have to put on the AC again, but uh, it, it should warm the environment up uh, again to help things and, and at least get people back to work earlier. Very nice. Scott, the next one is for you. Are dry beans adaptable in most areas in Michigan and also in other states? And is the data for varieties applicable for all other areas? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, and, and thinking about the, the history of bean production in the state, you know, prior to the, the kind of soybean boom, um, Michigan had, you know, close to a half million acres of dry beans. So that's two to three times what we have currently. And, and just based on land area, that, that doesn't all fit in our current, you know, traditional production region. Uh, so dry beans are, you know, very well adapted to most of the state of Michigan. Um, you, you know, as we go far south to north, um, we have production that still remains in the Upper Peninsula. Um, and they do do well in southern Michigan, too. Um, some of the things that, that can be a, a bit of a challenge would be drainage. Um, we know beans do very well on, you know, fertile, well-drained soils. Um, so that's kind of why we see them still, you know, remain in portions of the thumb where they're just very highly productive. Uh, but they are well adapted to most of Michigan's environment. And the data would be relatively applicable to, to most of the state of Michigan. Um, we do have those, you know, small nuanced environmental differences between counties. But as you start to look at those, you know, one, two, and especially three-year averages where you're looking at, you know, those true differences between varieties, uh, we think that's a pretty good measuring stick to, to just about anywhere in the state of Michigan. Perfect. The next one I see you answered in the chat, but we're going to ask it for all those who are on phones who can't see. What is the best rate of nitrogen for black beans? Yeah, so that's another great question and one we've worked pretty hard on in partnership with Dr. Kurt Steinke as well. Um, you know, that original recommendation of 40 to 60 pounds per acre was, you know, originally produced in the 1970s and 80s. Um, so we looked at that again, you know, over the past five years, you know, over multiple locations and multiple trials. Um, you know, with our increased yield potential over the past 40 years. Um, And we've landed back on that same number that the 40 to 60 pounds per acre of actual nitrogen is a a very good recommendation for beans. Um, The difficult part to that can be considering your crop rotation um, and 
and field history, such as, you know, manure and things like that, because 40 to 60 pounds is not, uh, not a huge number of nitrogen. So those nitrogen credits can make a big deal in that. And more is not always better. Uh, we do see when we have, you know, high nitrogen rates on bean fields, we get excessive, you know, foliar growth. And a lot of times we can run into disease issues with white mold, um, as well as lodging. Uh, so the 40 to 60 pounds has been a pretty solid recommendation for our growers here in Michigan. You mentioned, uh, you know, you can see white mold if you get too much nitrogen going on. Um, I know up in this area, we've seen different things, but with manure applications, we seem to see a higher rate of that. Do you, have you guys done any research or have any information on that? Yeah, so it's something that, that we always just recommend keeping an eye on in your rotation and penciling out what your believed credits are. Um, and when in doubt, um, we always recommend to, to err on the side of caution and stay lower on your nitrogen rates. Um, between no nitrogen applied um, and our, our typical recommendation, typically we're only seeing a one to 300 weight per acre type response. Um, so it's a fairly marginal response. Um, at today's bean prices, even with high fertilizer values, that typically pencils out economically to make that application, make sure you have the nitrogen. Uh, but, you know, if you're a little concerned that you might be running a little too much or a little heavy based on those manure credits, um, we recommend, you know, holding off because we can lose much more than we can gain um, if we do get a little heavy on the nitrogen. Perfect. The next question is from Phil. It says, is there a market for, for all the R beans if we increase acreage? Yeah, so that's a, another great question. And, and in today's market environment, while I'm not a marketer, um, I definitely believe there is. Um, we're seeing great uh, trends in domestic consumption of dry beans. You know, there's been the plant-based movement um, as beans are, beans are now the cool food. Um, and I think that's a, a good thing for our producers. And, you know, as we continue to, to increase production, you know, on acres we have and potentially expand into new acres, uh, we do believe there's a home for these beans. Um, it takes work on all sides, you know, from our marketers, from the promotion, um, some of the great work our Michigan Bean Commission does, and also the U.S. Dry Bean Council um, to, to work in partnership to increase consumption, you know, as well as our, our acres here in the state. I primarily focus on the first one, but uh, we leave it to, to our team on the other half. <laughs> Very nice. Um, Randy, I know you had a question on RUP credits that is enter entered into the chat, but for anybody else who was looking to see how they can check their RUP credits, you have to get a hold of the Michigan Department of Agriculture and Rural Development. Um, their phone number is 800-292-3939. And their email is mda-info at michigan.gov. Another question for you, Scott. When you were doing your planting rate population trials and you started pushing it up there, did you see more increases in disease pressure? And where was that kind of breaking point? Yeah, so in our trials, we have not seen a, a real difference in disease pressure as we push those up. Um, we know through some some other trials over the years, you know, that were done, you know, in the early 2000s, as well as across North Dakota, you know, oftentimes in, in irrigated situations where they, they attempt to encourage disease, um, that narrower rows, you know, similar to soybeans can have more disease pressure and also higher populations. Um, what we've anecdotally found is it does take a, a large difference in population to, to truly see that difference in disease pressure. Um, so it's hard to say exactly where that breaking point would be. 
Um, but within our, our standard range, typically we don't see a, a huge difference. Perfect. Um, I don't see any more questions going on there right now. So if you have any more for Scott, please drop them in the chat and we'll add them. Um, also, Chris Defonso just put in that for the MDARD question on your RUP credits, Lisa Graves is listed as the contact person on the MDARD site, and the phone number for her would be 517-284-5653. She dropped that in the chat for anybody who has access to the chat on their computer right now. I'm assuming that that person is still there. So as of a couple of months ago, yes, she was. <laughs> um, and with that, any of our other specialists who are on, do you have anything you want to add for things you're seeing? I do. If no one has anything, this is uh, Chris here. Uh, last week we had uh, all of our traps in the state. I uh, had a lot of black cutworm. I mean, not like hundreds, but enough that, you know, they would be in fields and driving around. I've seen a lot of fields with Roundup on them so that those have been killed. So if there had been egg laying over the last two weeks, you know, or you're spraying Roundup now, those are the fields that could potentially have some larvae in them and then crawling towards your emerging uh, corn. I know grain aphids have been transported because I've got a picture of some little things on wheat and they were aphids. So they're here, presumably probably potato leafhopper has arrived as well. And then we'll build slowly over the summer. And um, I think that's about it. Things are being moved and it's Jeff's fault. So <laughs> not mine. Chris, Chris, I have a question for you. I have had uh, several people ask me about alfalfa weevil in the last week, and they're starting to show up across the state. One of the questions that came up that I really didn't have a, a good answer for was how many growing degrees days do you need for those weevils to go between instars? So if they're very small, how long should we expect before they get very big and really cause a lot of damage? So on the Enviro weather web page, I don't remember specific degree days because I just go to the web page and you put in your location. And I think it's like, the assumption is that there's uh, 300 degree days, and this is base 48 because they're a little they're a little bit cold tolerant. Uh, when you have like adults coming out and laying eggs, and then you go up to around 450 or so. To this is total from the beginning of the year. Uh, then you get small larvae. You don't really care about small larvae really because most damage is done by that last instar. There's four instars, so probably. 80 to 90% of the feeding is that last instar, which is a little easier to see anyway. And that would go up to around 550 to 600 degree days. But when you use the Enviro Weather website, you just select the closest weather station and it pops in immediately based on the, the, the weather that has the, the temperatures that have been accumulated so far. And it tells you the date of major feeding, which would be a third and fourth instars and the date of pupation. And I checked KBS East Lansing Frankenmuth. Uh, in every case, in a few days, we're at pupation. So right now, if you should be seeing heavy feeding in your fields, if you have alfalfa, I've seen nothing on campus. I don't know if Kim is on. I haven't had any calls. There could be some isolated fields, but I think we're sort of near 
we're getting near the end. And if it's 90 degrees next week, that'll just move things along very, very quickly into the pupation uh, when they stop feeding. So Chris, I'm going to add to that and say that if you're within 10 days of harvest, the recommendation is to really cut, uh, use management to, to take care of those weevil, not necessarily use an insecticide. Well, and even if you had a lot of them, when you cut, then you remove a lot of that canopy that, you know, you'd have to try to treat and get through to control them. So then you can just look at the regrowth, a little easier to see the the larvae on the regrowth, and you can get some better coverage if you did have a lot of them. But again, I've asked around and I have not heard about uh, any weevil issues, but they're, they overwinter locally. So there certainly can, can be individual fields that, or farms that have a, have a problem. So how long can we expect to, uh, to wait before we see potato leafhopper coming into our alfalfa fields and typically, causing problems? Typically in Michigan, we get leafhopper the third week of May. I mean, that's, you know, we get, can be a week earlier, or a week later. It's here somewhere. It has, you know, hundreds of hosts. So, you know, the hotter and drier it is, the faster it goes and it's going to build in all crops. I have not seen any yet personally, but I'm pretty certain that they're, that they're there. And it takes, you know, maybe a month or so before you start to get those populations moving. And, you know, by July, they'll be in dry beans, they'll be in alfalfa, and they'll be in a lot of the vegetable crops. So I think we can blame Jeff again, can't we, for that? Because that weather from the South is coming again, right? Always do. He's probably not even on, so. (laughs) No, we, right. I see Dennis is on. Do you have anything for wheat, Dennis? No, not anything in particular. Um, The wheat crops moving along and advancing quickly. We're flag leaf and, and beyond in much of southern Michigan. Uh, we even have some, uh, our earliest lines in our breeding trials are starting to flower now. So um, despite the cold temperatures we've had, uh, it's moving along quite rapidly. And Dennis, I will tell you that I saw a couple cereal leaf beetles and some wheat down at KBS, little, little ones. But, you know, again, that's another little insect that kind of pops up at this time of the year. Yep. I haven't seen any cereal leaf beetle yet this year. Um, have seen a few aphids, but just a f- small number. So, yep. And with, with the uh, canopy getting a little more dense and crop extending and whatnot, we are starting to see some disease. We've seen some leaf rust and a little bit of powdery mildew um, as well. Martin, do you have anything for us? Um, just on the wheat. Um, there's been some confirmed barley yellow dwarf virus um, in the diagnostic lab that's aphid transmitted and wheat streak mosaic virus that's transmitted by wheat curl mite. Um, so a little bit of virus um, activity. We're starting to head out on campus um, in terms of growth stage. Um, oh, and some loose smut as well. Um, that's not anywhere near as big a concern as some of the other um, carnal bunts, um, other smuts that we get later in the season that'll cause that stinking uh, fish smell at harvest. But yeah, it's been some loose smut. So I think that's all I have. Perfect. I don't see any other specialists on, but if you're on there and I'm just missing you in the participant list, feel free to chime in with anything you have. 
All right. With that, Phil, you're on mute. I can't. I just see your mouth moving. But with that, I think we will go ahead and wrap it up unless Phil had wanted his saying public here. With nothing else. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, perfect. Thank you guys for joining us today. We appreciate we appreciate it. And we will see you next week for Hot Topics, where our every specialist will be on to answer all your burning questions on things and to let you know what they're seeing. And Thank if you. People want us. People want to send us the hot topic question ahead of time. The answers will be even better. There so. you. There you go. All right. Thank you guys all so much for attending today, and have a great day.